Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I'm a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, where I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center. We're trying to develop a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And part of that effort is bringing you access to some of the best and brightest in the product management world so that you can get your questions answered and that we could cover some of the topics that uh, relate to succeeding in product management. And today's guest is uh, Matt uh, Landry from Meraki, and he has a wealth of experience before landing as VP there. So Matt, I'm going to let you in your own words, tell us about your journey in product. Oh my God, I'll keep it short, I promise. Uh, Jeff, thanks Thanks much for welcoming me to the uh, the clubhouse. Good to meet you all. As Jeff said, my name is Matt Landry and I am the uh, VP of product for networking and security at Cisco Meraki, which means I'm responsible for all of our core networking product lines. And it's it's been quite a long journey, but I think as, as many people have probably identified with, it often starts with uh, some sort of technical engineering role. And then, uh, you know, I've heard many folks on, on past uh, episodes of the uh, pod here that sitting in front of the computer all day and running simulations or, <laughs> or developing wasn't, wasn't the same as spending time talking to customers about how they want to implement and deploy technology. So, you know, early on in that career, I ended up transitioning into product marketing, which in the semiconductor industry is the same thing as product management. Took me a while to get over that hump. And, uh, you know, since then, I've been in a variety of industries, whether it's semiconductors or medical devices or DNA sequencing or enterprise networking, um, just sort of growing my responsibilities, growing my uh, my influence over over the products and and leading teams of teams, which is, is absolutely amazing. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for being here. And then Sumeya. Uh, thanks for joining us again. It's great to have you back. In case they forgot, since we took two weeks off, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and where your experiences are similar or different from Matt's. Yeah, absolutely. I'm another person who started on the technical track and then uh, over time moved uh, really, actually quickly moved over to product management. I've always been on the software side and recently started working on a software to hardware kind of product. Uh, so I'm excited to participate in today's conversation and, and learn uh, some lessons from Matt. But over the past 20 years, I've worked on numerous products. Uh, I've led the product organization. I've worked in a startup and in large uh, companies. So uh, in software and non-software companies, but always building software. So I love to share perspectives and hear from others about how they've built products and learned in that journey. So Jeff, I'm really excited about our conversation today. 
All right. I love the enthusiasm you bring every single week, except for the weeks that we're not here. Uh, but I'm sure you bring some enthusiasm somewhere else. <laughs> but uh, love it every every time. Uh, Matt and Sumeya, what we're going to talk about today are metrics that you've tracked or are tracking. And I want to kind of get a sense of, from what I understand, Matt, you've transitioned through several different technology industries. And so I would love, uh, as we talk about metrics, to also talk about like the differences between these technology industries and how these metrics change. And then we're going to get into a little bit, since you're a a manager of managers, also how responsibilities evolve relative to the scale of the company and the seniority of the role. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And Sumeya, your gift is that you could always tell people both new to product management and been in product management for years, why should they listen to the topic that we choose? So why is uh, these metrics and how they're different and transitioning across different technology industries and how responsibilities evolve with company and seniority? Why does this matter to everyone? I think something, a theme you've probably heard about again and again is that product management is in the nuance. Uh, it's very hard to find many rules that apply to everything in product management. There are some principles, uh, there are some general guidelines, but they're almost like a handful. You can count them on your hand. Uh, that can be absolutely true in all absolute situations. And so these conversations, like the one we're having with Matt today, where he's going to share his lived experience and some of the nuance that made certain experiences successful and maybe others challenging. And as you hear that, I think it's always interesting, at least to me, to hear the lessons and the, the kernels of truth and build on that because we all experience challenges. We all experience opportunities and other people's lived experiences can be really inspiring. So I'm listening with that mindset. And I think that can be helpful to all product managers at any level of their career. All right. Thank you, Sumeya. And we're missing Red, our normal co-host. Uh, he brings a whole level of energy and excitement, but he would want me to tell you he, he's okay. <laughs> that sound came out really uh, bad. He, he's just missing today. And he would want me to tell you that we are trying to make these conversations as inclusive as possible. So if you are here on Clubhouse, in about 20 minutes, we're going to get uh, you a chance to raise your hand and have your questions be answered. So stay tuned for that. But Matt, can I lean on you to just tell me a little bit about networking and security and the metrics that matter. I know that as a, a PM, defining success is important and tracking success is important. So what are the metrics that matter in networking and security? First of all, I do want to say how disappointed I am that Red is not here because I, I came armed with a number of Red puns and, and they're now useless. Oh man, we'll still appreciate him. <laughs> Sumay and I still appreciate him. <laughs> I know, I want to hear them still. <laughs> yeah, lay them on us. Maybe next time we'll be ready. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so networking. No networking pun intended. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I was, I was ready to roll all the way back to like the semiconductor industry and and talk about metrics there, but but just wanted to. So, may I almost jumped in. Like, isn't it great working on a combined software and hardware product? And one of the great things is that uh, you you can take hardware which historically had you know no ability to collect usage data on it, right? Like you put it out into the world and then you don't really know what's going on. Maybe, uh, maybe combine that with some, some broadcast marketing and then you, you can only measure the sales as your, as your primary success metric. And that was absolutely true in the semiconductor industry. But, but now as soon as you attach some software to it, like all of a sudden it opens up, opens up the world for being able to, to measure engagement with hardware devices. And in this case, you know, I think a lot about 
about enterprise networking and those LAN, wireless, Wi-Fi connectivity and, and security devices on the networks. And so we, we now live in this world where we, we of course, track sales outcomes uh, because that's what the corporation likes to see. And that's what, uh, you know, what we're responsible for talking about on a quarterly basis to Wall Street. But, uh, but internally, we can keep track of things like what are the you know, activation rates for these products? You know, how, how quickly are they getting turned on? What's the engagement with the management software platform, which, you know, having cloud connected management software is just a beautiful thing. And then measuring things like adoption of new features that we develop and put out there. We have hypotheses about how we can improve the, the ability to keep devices up and running and keep the end users happy and develop new capabilities to to achieve that and measure the success of those. We can we can you know leverage our support channel to measure the uh, the customer effort or the net promoter score which we're trying to move away from these days but but you know use it as even for the customers that are having problems and need, need support of some type. We can measure their uh, their happiness and, and ability to feel like they've been able to resolve their problems. And and these are all powered by software. And, and yet you have that tangibility of the hardware product, which is which is what I love. One of the, the challenges, Matt, you know, as you were talking about some of the examples of the metrics that are really important around engagement and activation and adoption, et cetera, which can also be broken down further into so many others. Do you consider those top line metrics generally? Yeah, so at, at the top line, we do, and we we measure probably more than we need to, but um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but, but it, there's always the debate over, hey, are we actually looking at the right things? Absolutely. What what are the month over month or or quarter over quarter, year over year? What are the you know number of customers that are adopting and activating, just you know installing, turning it on, getting it hooked up, and signing themselves in? How frequently are they returning? to that, that software platform that goes with, with the hardware. And then from there, because, you know, in this case, when, when you're running an enterprise network, you, know, you care greatly about the health of the network and, and its ability to get end users online using applications, using business apps or uh, accessing data centers and, and the internet. And whenever anything goes wrong on that network, that's something that we want to make sure is kept as short as possible and, and the problem is solved as, as uh, quickly as possible. So, so also measuring those, uh, those sorts of metrics, like how often are, are issues coming up on the network. And, and for us, we, we spend time thinking about how do we start adding more intelligence, right? How do we take the next step from what was just uh, standard enterprise networks that you deploy and, and kind of set it and forget it. And when things break, it's uh, all hands on deck. How do we turn that into a you know, software powered system that is able to then, then self-correct? And so that's, that's kind of the next level of metrics. We're seeing increasing need and desire to track so that we can make better focused investments on, on improving that capability. But uh, you know, honestly, my, my teams and, and naturally because of our behavior on management, a lot of attention still gets pulled up to how many are you selling? <laughs> What's the performance this quarter versus last? How many are, uh, are renewing and buying a new one year, three year, 10 year license? And so like the, the financial metrics are a constant struggle to, for us not to pay too much attention to those. Samaya, how does that match with what you're seeing or doing? It matches in so many ways. There is one part that I wanted to talk about a little bit because it has been top of mind for me lately, which is that need to deliver so, you know, the value to the customer right away 
and the need to build as much instrumentation to collect the metrics we also want. And yes, there is a tipping point, but when you're talking about early days of a product, it's at least for me, I have seen it to be a big struggle to make that decision of, we need to ship right this minute. We have 10 things we want to get insights on, and these are the only three we can get. Oh, and by the way, one of these three, we are going to get it because it's one of the fastest, but not necessarily one of the most meaningful because of the efforts, et cetera. So that prioritization around data continues, I think, to be um, sometimes a challenging place. Totally agree. Totally agree. You know, because I know I've, I've had this feeling, too, when you sit down and, and you just float the idea of, well, can we just collect everything? What, why yeah. not? How hard can that possibly be? <laughs> How much time do you have? How much money do you have? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, one one of the things that we've been adding more and more of this type of, of data collection, specifically around user flows and journeys and interactions in the software platform. And what our teams have found, because we have a pretty rich set of products that have been on the market for, for quite some time, we're always adding new generations and, and expanding the capabilities. And uh, the, the teams have found that, at least in, in that environment where, you know, you've got, we've got a lot of data that's coming from the hardware, right? Tons of telemetry on how the hardware itself is behaving and what people are doing on the networks, but uh, relatively less amounts on how they're interacting with the web applications. Because the the job historically has been, well, we're just providing the app to, to help them set up the hardware and make sure it's working. And now over the last few years, we've been transitioning to paying a lot more attention to how that, that web application is being used and, and how problems themselves are being resolved. Not just that they are, but like what's the process through which people go. And, and the teams have found that at least in that environment that they don't feel the pressure to instrument everything, that they can take an iterative approach to let's focus on this one specific area. We're going to introduce a new widget and instrument that up, make sure we understand the data that we're pulling in, that we can ask intelligent questions of it, have some hypotheses, see if we can come up with some answers and, and maybe influence the outcomes on the next generation. And and the teams have been able to grapple with that you know, much, much more easily. And it's not as daunting. It's a lot harder when you're starting from from scratch because that, that desire to instrument everything. I've, I've been there. I've, I feel that. The other thing beyond that state when you're starting I think also the nature of the hardware that you're dealing with, for example, the one I'm working with right now, I can't talk about it a lot, but it literally requires us to have robots or drones or something that verifies that the hardware is working as it should be. Imagine when you go to Amazon Fresh and there are all these hardware devices that tell you the price, that measure the size of something or the weight of something. How do you test them as a product team and ensure that they're working and, you know, they have the observability and the reliability you really want to deliver? So there are so many layers of complexity, at least that I'm seeing in hardware, that I didn't really have to face when I was just working in the lovely world of software. (laughs) (laughs) and And I hope that you're collaborating closely with the hardware team. Yes, absolutely. That, yeah, that's, it's that's really the key, right? That's the key that you've you've got them at the table. So, Matthew, we're talking a lot about uh, this trade-off between setting yourself up to collect the information versus going straight to just satisfying customers as best as you can. How has this trade-off kind of been different in different industries that you've been in, uh, and how you approach that trade-off? Interesting question. So, I, I think one one thing that immediately comes to mind is the 
sort of the, the adoption and deployment cycle for the customer, which you could imagine, for example, is very different when you're selling a, selling a piece of silicon that they're going to design into a, a system of their own and you know, hopefully develop all of these different operating telemetry data sources and, and make sure that things are integrated and operating properly. And then they're going to put it out in the market and sell it to an end customer who, who then deploys it. And, and that's a very, you know, sort of very long feedback loop before you get things, uh, you start getting some of the metrics. And, and in the case of old school semiconductors, where it's just a, just a device, there's, there's no software that I have access to. So all I can do is pay attention to the sales data. It's, it's a really, you know, really long loop. Whereas, uh, you know, in, in devices like consumer, consumer electronics, or in, in my case, enterprise networking, there, there is a, a you know, faster loop to get them in everybody's hands, get them activated, and get them to start using it. And, and I think it's just that the, the behavior of the end customers that, that has a huge influence on, on how you think about it. Samaya, have you noticed that how that trade-off is different across uh, different industries you've been in? Or how you approach that trade-off? I think part of this comes to research methods and what's available to you. So at different parts of the life cycle of the product, the only data available to you might be just uh, user interviews and more of that contextual data and information. And I think at no point in the product life cycle should you not do that. Uh, talking to the customer is always important and drives a lot of the context around what you end up doing, even if the data is showing something different. Uh, and more often than not, it gives you insight of why the data is telling a specific story. So uh, in terms of what you have available and what you don't, uh, you work with what you have available. Like Matt said, um, you use what you have to gather the insights you need and whatever you can't gather through data at scale because you're just the majority of your instrumentation isn't there, or you just haven't built up enough of those features that help you collect that data, then you, you like I said, do supplement by actual conversations with humans. Have you seen uh, maybe with pure, even pure software products, like different customer types, you know, might be a, an application that they're able to use themselves, you know, web app or, or some sort of downloadable app that they install and they can be used, use of it immediately versus maybe somebody who's in, in a corporate setting and they have to either get approvals or it has to be integrated into a larger system. Have you seen, seen any differences that stem from that, that adoption deployment behavior? I see that happen in two places or like we pay attention to that in two places we pay attention to it when we're talking about customer personas when you're thinking about customer persona it's every part of the journey that they're on pre-sales post-sales all of that is part of that journey how can they get value from the software you're delivering to them. So that's a really important part of the equation. And then that comes up again, really at every part, but I, you know, in a meaningful way, again, in the customer success function, once more, where you're thinking about, okay, in sales, of course, uh, sales looks different depending on the type of persona. In the B2B space specifically, you have products that someone can subscribe to immediately and connect them to whatever internal systems they have. That's probably true for a startup. But then when you start talking about corporations, they have security requirements. They have to go through a whole procurement department. The cycle is three months or six or 12, and the contracts are so much bigger. So it requires two things that are different, not just software and onboarding, but also the go-to-market approach 
is different in the sales approach and the customer support, et cetera. So in terms of the data there, each one of these interactions provides you insights. Um, and I think the best teams, the best product teams, find all these interactions as opportunities to gather data and voice of the customer to help them then build better products. I'm curious if that's what you see as well. hundred percent, hundred percent. Even even here at Meraki, one of the things that we did early on that was unique in the network industry was introduce a free trial program. Right. And coming from the software world, like, of course, why, why wouldn't you do a free trial program? Right. It's zero marginal cost. But it was a huge, huge innovation in the network industry because nothing like it existed. And you're actually sending hardware out on, on a FedEx truck and, and delivering it or on an you know, Amazon delivery van, I guess, <laughs> in this case, uh, you know, delivering it to the uh, to the customer and, and letting them activate it and, and use it without paying for it. And, and it was a huge innovation, but it, it shortened that time to value loop, right? Like there was no decision to make. You, you just had to place the order and, and try it out. And then you can make a decision later. And, and that absolutely changed both that level of data, because then we could start identifying what they're activating, make sure that they were using, uh, identify if there, are, there were problems they ran into so that we could reach out and help resolve them and, and then move them through the buying cycle faster so that we could shorten shorten the overall enterprise sales sales times. Matt, I love that example. I, I imagine on the ground, it was someone who said, why not? Why don't we do it? But if you were totally. to look at it <laughs> at the macro level, if you look at the, the, the curve of the cost of hardware and availability and things like that, was the timing just right? Or were those conditions of price and cost true for a long time, and we just hadn't asked that question. You know, as, as I think through, you know, what's the product operations and business operations that had to go behind it? And, and in the end, I, I think it was just, nobody had asked the question and, and thought that it would be important. Because, you know, we, we just ended up building a, a supply chain around the idea that we'd be sending out sending out hardware that we'd have to take back on some number of cases, right? And then, of course, we are motivated to make sure that the conversion rate, the number of customers that end up buying the trial that they initiated, is as high as possible <laughs> so that we don't have to deal with the reverse logistics. But uh, in the end, you just design around the reverse logistics. And, and you know, the hardware is not going to... It's not going to fall apart. You, you ship it around in a box, and it survives. And, and you build a, uh, a a factory refurbishing or factory renewal or remanufacturing flow to to handle it and, and eliminate as much waste as possible. And and in the end, you're forced to think about the entire customer journey from from that original awareness to how they send it back when they're done. And and that as well helps. It forces you to think holistically, and that's it's almost intangible, but it's it's a superpower for creating a, a very sticky, beloved product. I, I want to just double-click very quickly on the why not concept, <laughs> because regardless of what industry anyone is in, I think there are these ingrained biases around things that might be true in a, at a certain point in time. But then they're no longer tr- no longer true, but they're still held as beliefs. And then it just takes somebody asking that question. I love it when PMs do that. Uh, And it might take them a couple of weeks of discovery and just asking more people that question. And they might hit a wall or they might have a breakthrough. So thank you for sharing that story. 
All right. I'm loving the interaction happening between our expert in residence, Sumeya Benganam, and our uh, guest today, Matt Landry. Now it's time for your questions to be answered. Matt, are you red E for audience questions? <laughs> Doesn't work I the same, does it? Ready. <laughs> <laughs> you sounded almost well, as defeated as red does every time I do it. <laughs> He was going for that. I can tell. <laughs> the, the joke in absentia is just not the same. Not the same. Uh, all right. So we're going to take some audience questions. I'm going to try to bounce through the written questions as much as possible. Uh, but I'd love it if you raised your hand. And then if you do, uh, Sumeya will pull you up on stage. Uh, just a reminder, this is recorded and put out as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast, available on every major podcasting platform. So we'll use your first names only, but remind you that you're being recorded. But we'd love to have you uh, come up and ask your question of Sumeya or Matt. I have one question in chat. And again, I'm hoping that somebody in this audience will raise their hand because we just love new voices and new perspectives. This question is, uh, I'm going to ask the question first, but I'm going to share the question first, but I'm going to dive in on a piece of it before we get to the actual question. So the question is, what metrics do you like for measuring customer onboarding as a growth PM? But before that, uh, growth PM is a term that I've, I've heard quite a bit, but I'm not sure that all our listeners know exactly what a growth PM is and perhaps what a growth PM is not. Uh, so I'm wondering if we could first take Jonathan's question and dive into just one piece of it and uh, share your perspective on what makes a growth PM. And in terms of growth, right, the metrics that we measure in, in, in terms of growth, it, it really is getting back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the time to value. Because if, if you're going to convert somebody into into a paying customer or or somebody who's bought once and will continue to buy and expand their, their spending with you, it, it's all about how quickly can they get online, get it running, get, get the product doing for them what they wanted when they bought it. That to me, that's that's the absolute most important thing that you can keep track of. Because then, once once you're either detecting that, then you can encourage that behavior, or you can you can build upon that behavior. And if you're not detecting it, you've you've got a problem to go solve. You know, I'm struggling a little bit uh, with the, getting specific in this question. Uh, you, you might hear, have heard that a little bit from um, from Matt as well. Uh, because at a, at a high level, every PM on the team really cares about growth. It shows up in different ways. But then when you boil it up, to, to Matt's point earlier, it, it, you know, it ties up generally to sales growth, uh, especially if you're in the, in the B2B side. I, the reason why I'm hesitating here is because at different parts of the product lifecycle different metrics matter. For example, retention continues to be really important uh, throughout, you know, a healthy product's uh, life cycle, pre-product market fit, you just want growth. And it's not just about onboarding. It's about how many people are using it, using the product, how many people are finding value, etc. And so unless Jonathan joins us up here, and we can get a little more nuance around this question, I think it's going to get a little bit of a general answer. In terms of the growth PM role, there are some amazing people that I have met through my career who have done this role. Uh, this role. I always see them as product managers 
who straddle the product management and the marketing function. They, they're good at both. They don't necessarily have a complete backlog that they're responsible for, but they have a lot of stories, let's say, in a backlog for a product that they work with the PM on. They're responsible for growth. A lot of products, for example, have multiple product managers. And so the growth PM, in general, can work across PMs and is thinking about uh, the growth uh, across the board. So uh, that's how I would define product ma- um, the growth product management function. Uh, but uh, yeah, hopefully Jonathan can join us and provide some insights. This does make me you know, want to wander off onto a tangent, but for, for uh, Jeff, for you and, and, and Samia, you as well, do, do we do a good enough job in the product management industry of, of having properly defined and, and understood sub-disciplines of product management? I mean, every company has a slight twist <laughs> on what they mean by product manager in general, but, but uh, you know, the idea of a, of a growth product manager or a go-to-market product manager or, or technical product manager or inbound, like, have we done a good enough job of, of uh, defining those, those disciplines and normalizing them? Before, Samaya, before you answer it, I want to say, if you're in the audience and have an p- opinion on this, whether you're trying to get into product management or you're already in it, I want to hear from you. Hop up on stage if you have an opinion on has the discipline done a good enough job of defining the sub-disciplines. Samaya, sorry to cut you off, but I want to get people thinking that they could come up and share. Yes, absolutely. I would love that. Matt, you asked a trick question. <laughs> the, the reason I say that is, uh, you know, in highly regulated industries, you're going to get roles that are highly defined. Financial planner or an accountant have very specific things that they do. But I think anything other than highly regulated, you, you can find a little bit of an anarchy or like a chaos <laughs> in, the, in the definition of what the, those roles are. Is that good or bad? I don't know. I, you know, there is one part of me that really has low bureaucracy tolerance. And whenever people try to put things in a box and then they the other people can't find a place in the box, then you create a lot of exclusion, inclusion issues. But on the other end, there is confusion. This is where you get sub-industries that help people navigate something like this. (laughs) I, I think the answer to this is no, we have not defined this. The fact that even product management roles and project management roles keep getting confused and interchangeably applied within the same exact company uh, is something that I would love to solve for one day. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any ideas on what we can do about that? Argue, argue about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> at least, you know, at least we can raise <laughs> we can raise visibility to the fact that that this is. A real thing that and that but what one company means by a product manager is not necessarily the same thing that another does startups in particular have have very loose and and fluid definitions even within a given startup right like it's it's just part of the the growth of that organization and, and what they need from the person who says that they're going to be the product manager <laughs> and and so maybe recognition of that will help and i you know i'm interested in it just just uh completely selfishly because it, it, it proves a bit of a barrier when recruiting and wanting to build out the team, right? Because if you don't have a good definition, then then the recruiters might screen out the wrong people. 
and and not be as inclusive as we want. Or we make it harder for for myself as a hiring manager to identify people who have the right core set of skills, but they didn't have the you know the right job title. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting one. Maybe, maybe we need a consortium. Maybe we need a, a a product management industry consortium, or maybe a. Uh, an opportunity, Jeff, for you to to drive some uh, some white paper action on this. I was going to say, maybe you need an impartial university uh, or a product <laughs> management center somewhere uh, to mediate this uh, nice. fight. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I do see a lot of questions about not only like the definitions of these different subdisciplines within product management, but also like the uh, appropriate. A number of roles and and uh, how to PM your own career in terms of tackling some of these different roles and how many of them do you tackle before you move up to being managers of product managers? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, as you were talking about, as your responsibilities change, as uh, you know, companies and your team scale and your role within them change. So, any thoughts on that as to picking the whether to zero in or how often to switch across these different subdisciplines of product management? Man, I'm going to say the irresponsible thing, but do it when the mood strikes. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just I just feel like if you try too hard to engineer your product management career, you you might be missing out on some interesting things. And and all of these different aspects can can be independently fascinating, satisfying, interesting. And uh, you know, assigning a timer to each one just doesn't seem doesn't seem right to me. So I, I, I'm much more, much more in the camp of you can, you can write the story of your career after you've lived it. Interesting. Very poetic. Write the story of your career after you've lived it. Uh, Sumeya, any thoughts on that? I'm going to let the mic drop on that one. Okay. <laughs> Not helpful. I know. But Matt, that, that, that was really, that was really good. I do recognize people have different personalities I have met people in high school who, or sorry, elementary school who knew what they wanted to be when they were adults and they become that. Now I'm in my 40s. I'm watching that. And they literally said what they wanted to do and did it. And so I imagine there is an element of personality and character that goes into this evaluation and then a lot of luck and hard work. So, but I don't, I'm, I'm of the temperament similar temperament to Matt around, you know, watching out for the opportunities. And, and that's, that's what goes into making your own luck to a certain extent, right? Like you, you identify the opportunity, you identify the interest in yourself and, and you run with it and make the most of it. All right. Well, uh, there's agreement here. Uh, let's see if we can get some disagreement from the questions that we get from our audience. We have two people here. I'm going to try to channel my inner red and I was trying to think of a pun. Matt, do you have anything? Pretend I'm red and give us something. <laughs> Lay it on us. Bring the entertainment that Red usually brings to the show whenever the moment strikes. But until then, uh, I, if I'm pronouncing this right, Rafti, uh, it's your, the stage is yours. Uh, we're trying to talk about uh, metrics and changing industries and scaling as, uh, but, and careers as they change and grow. But uh, I think that's kind of an open-ended opportunity for you to talk about anything. So uh, what's your question or what's your comment? I think it's out of topic, uh, but uh, I want to know like a, What's kind of person that uh, fit well in this role? I mean, like a behavior and what the need to improve the behavior to fit this role? Mm, nurture versus nature type of thing. I think that's a very interesting question. I've gotten it before. I want to reframe it a little bit and talk about 
successful product managers we've worked with, what are some of the the things that they do really well uh, or like the traits that they carry and necessarily not necessarily talk about, you know, something innate in them. And, and Matt, I'd be curious about your opinion there, but a couple of things that, that are important to me or I like to see in product managers. The first one is curiosity, just simply leading with questions and a desire to understand and really an understanding that your level of knowledge can only improve at any moment in time. So uh, I'm always interested in that. And then the second one is a realization of the nuance. So for example, on one end of the spectrum, in a lot of times when you're thinking about motivating the team or influencing the team, there are two things that the team worries about. One is results, but then the other one is relationships. And you can over-index on one versus the other and create a negative situation. You're either going to create you know, a, a mediocre team or you're going to create a toxic team. And so the, the product managers, this is, the, the, by the way, what I just talked about are just two tensions that in, exist in the team or even in the organization. But PMs pay attention to all those tensions. There are tensions within the product itself, sometimes between pricing and value, sometimes between one feature that has front-end impact and the other back-end, but they're constantly playing that game and trying to understand where, where to um, push the lever or turn the dial a little here, and, and if they've gone too far, to turn the other dial, and, and are able to have these conversations. The rest, to me, uh, can be learned and can be acquired easily, but this recognition in depth of the nuance. Um, and then, like I said, the curiosity are things I always look for. De- definitely agree on those. Um, and, and I'd add, I'd add two, two more, maybe, maybe they're very related, but in addition to the curiosity, I, I would add a, an element of unhappiness with the status quo and, and recognizing or, or feeling that there, there are ways to improve. Things could be better. They don't have to be done this way. And when you pair that with the curiosity, that that's when you, you know, you have the uh, ability to seek out new ways to approach things. And and in order to do that successfully over time and not crash and burn, you you need to have that strong opinions weekly held <laughs> aspect as well, where you can you know form form a view on what the right answer is, and and then start pressure testing it, and and you know not drop it immediately. You want to you want to have the vision, you want to have the passion, you want to try and sell people on it, and then. When they bring up things you forgot to think about, <laughs> then then you you readjust and, and maybe head a different direction. But um, you know, being being interested, being willing to change your ideas, and and wanting to change the world, I think all of those together you need in order to to build a, a strong product career. And uh, you know, I guess a lot of that is both nature and nurture. You can work on all of them. I love that. Um, I'm going to go on a quick tangent here. Um, I was listening today to uh, the Nobel Prize winner uh, or economist, Daniel Kahneman, talking about how the most successful people who have been um, like successful in a spectacular way have been unreasonable in their pursuit of something. Also, <laughs> unsuccessful people have also been unreasonable in their pursuit of something. <laughs> but, I know. Uh, <laughs> this, this, is the, this is like the contra case, right? Um, yeah, the I, curse. I would, so, 
maybe maybe Kahneman wouldn't, but uh, but Amos Tversky definitely would point out that there's a survivorship bias there too. And so I, yeah. I struggle with this one. <laughs> I struggle with this one because it doesn't it uh, it doesn't fit with the strong opinions we held at all. Do you feel, Matt, that you know in in these situations? I mean, there there is also research on this around like when is it time to give up? But have you come up with your own rules? Like, let's talk about product management specifically, whether it's a product or a feature or something. How much time is enough time to give something to to enough time for its uh, experiment to actually be a reasonable time before you give up? Two days. <laughs> what is that? A taco? <laughs> <laughs> yes, tacos with something inside. That you have two days. If it, if, it, if it takes longer than two days, then drop. Um, yeah, tough one. This is a, this one really. I, I've often find falls in a judgment call territory, and and when when things are successful, right, you get the data quickly. The signal to noise ratio is really high, so you're you're able to see outcomes uh, pretty fast, and, and and they're compelling on their own. It's it's when things aren't aren't that clear and it's maybe a slower burn or you haven't gotten it quite right that's where it's hard right you don't you don't know whether to, to keep changing or or just drop it all together i don't have a formula for that one at all you know i think it's it's um a measure of is there any signal in the noise it's not just pure randomness are, are there people that are adopting adopting a solution or are you able to have conversations with customers and, and you at least have some number that are indicating that um, that your hypothesis for the problem that it solves is is actually correct? Uh, you know, absent that, it should be pretty clear that it, it's time to move on. But um, in between, when when yes, some people are happy, but you might not be dealing with a large enough market to turn it into a sustainable business. That's when you have to do a lot of uh, a lot of soul searching and you know figure out whether it's your one change away from from hitting the hockey stick or if you might be tackling the wrong problem that doesn't have uh, a large market behind it. Laylock, if we pronounced that correctly, feel free to uh, correct us if we did not. Uh, the floor is yours to get your question or comment heard. You did. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for having me. Actually, I was, uh, I'm really interested about product management. And for me, I work, I work in healthcare. So basically, I do service management. So in terms of, uh, I have actually three questions. So I will just ask one of them for now. I don't know if the time will allow. But uh, my question is that for a product management, what is the, the, the extent of engagement with, the, uh, let's say, uh, uh, risk management and uh, uh, R&D team or uh, and how, how is this relationship uh, very critical or does it sometimes serve as an obstacle, for example, or if you are not in, in, in good let's say in the same page with the R&D team and because I don't I do understand like the, the relationship is very critical uh, in terms of the outcome. So yeah. I, I think this is a critical position where you are like in between um, uh, multiple departments and that sometimes yeah. the engagement yeah. is not healthy. Yeah. So the collaboration question, I think, is a very important one. It, you brought up the 
the R&D example, uh, it happens also with marketing, with risk, to your point, legal, so many other teams. A lot of times product managers have to do, do those collaborations. Uh, Matt, do you have any uh, advice on how to uh, collaborate effectively with teams that have different incentives in some ways um, and how to maybe the second part can be about challenging teams. So as the, from, from the role of the product manager, I, I think at least I personally take the approach of trying to act as the neutral party to a certain extent, right? To get these different stakeholder teams to express what they care about, what they worry about so that you know they feel they feel that they're being heard and, and understood and then at the same time you know i'll look to well, what's you know what's the bare minimum i have to do in order to satisfy like a risk management department's a good example like you you have to have to get the sign off for the thing to get out the door but you know like over delivering on <laughs> on, on the risk requirements that's you nothing for the product but you want to get get enough to get the sign off and move on which you know i'm, I'm being uh, extreme a bit, uh, especially when it comes to risk, because risk is an important topic. But you know, kind of trading off, like how how can I do enough to get to get you on board? And and a lot of it is sort of social engineering, but much more than uh, a, a pure requirements development trade off. That, that's the way I tend to think about it. All right, Laylock, thanks for that question. It is time for concluding thoughts. We've had some discussion, some debate. Uh, and I want to give you each enough space to conclude with what you want to leave the listener with. I wanted to say that this was a, a great conversation. Um, Matt, you know, you are a VP right now, but I think the, the level of insight you have can apply to any level or any uh, to product management uh, managers at any level of the organization. So thank you for sharing that. My big takeaway here is as I'm starting, I'm making I'm making it extremely personal to me. So it's probably not gonna apply to anyone. And and for me at least in this collaboration that I'm doing right now in the software to hardware world, is to think about two things. One, working even close more closely with my hardware partner on these solutions that we want to deliver, of course, to create value for the the, the customer and the user. Um, but secondly, I'm I, I was inspired by your why not comment. And I'm gonna bring that that's gonna be at the back of my mind for the next few weeks. So thanks Matt. Over to you. Thank you, Sumeya, and thank you for the kind words. We've had a pretty wide ranging <laughs> number of topics that we've we've covered off and you know, maybe maybe the thing that uh, I want to leave with folks who are considering or want to, to get into to product management, you know, sort of to this idea of writing your career story after the fact is that uh, I encourage everyone to to be very open with where they go in their product management career, whether it's a, a subdiscipline of product or whether it's changing industries. I, I myself have been in several distinct industries, and there's always some, you know, some nugget, some some experience you've had that it is. Uh, if you if you squint your eyes and tilt the light correctly, you can see that it applies to this other industry, and uh, and and that's real. That's not just made up. You know, the the principles of product management, the way you think through solving problems, the way you think about identifying which metrics might be important, the, the, the discipline you have around getting enough data 
to to support or explode a hypothesis, but not too much. All of those apply. So, you know, also I don't want people to feel like they have to pick the one industry and, and that's their only shot. So that you know that that level of flexibility and and trying different areas and, and following following their interest in, in product management is is what I love to see. All right. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. Really appreciate your perspective. Uh, and thank you, Sumeya, as always, bringing some great insights and dialogue with our guests here today. So in conclusion for me, my name is again, Jeff Schulman. I want to remind you that the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington is your home to give back. Matt generously gave back, shared an hour of his time and uh, years and years of expertise condensed into this conversation to support everybody. And so I'm hoping that if you are a product manager, that you'll consider giving back uh, through the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. Uh, The initiatives that we have, we have this uh, podcast every single week. So I'd love to have you as a guest on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. We're also working to develop a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community through the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. We have uh, professionals from historically marginalized communities who are ready to be product managers And the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington is sharing knowledge, community, and uh, opportunity and connections uh, to support their journey into product management. So if you want to support aspiring PMs from historically marginalized communities who are carefully selected, rigorously trained, and will be continuously supported, please reach out to me or, or sign up on our website to volunteer. And if you are an aspiring product manager from a historically marginalized communities, at the moment, we are focused on those who are eligible to work uh, here in the United States. And our application window is opening soon, next month, I believe. So uh, sign up on our website, uh, uh, the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. Sign up on our website to get updates for when this free very free program uh, opens up its application window. Again, I just want to thank Matt, Sumeya, and everybody uh, who has worked with the Product Management Center at the University of Washington to try to build a more inclusive future, uh, one in which all product managers, uh, no matter where they come from, and all aspiring product managers have the the knowledge and the community of support uh, to achieve uh, what they're capable of achieving. So everybody, thank you and have a good night.